The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, my guest is Ms. April Winslow, a fellow registered dietitian. In fact, we met at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Houston, where I heard her speak. She is the co-founder of the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. She's also the public policy liaison for Behavior Health Nutrition Practice Group of the Academy, and she is the founder of Choose to Change Nutrition Services based in San Jose, California. Now, I just want to let our listeners know that there are about 70,000 registered dietitians in the United States, and we all belong to different practice groups, and so My chosen path is hunger and environmental nutrition, and April's chosen path is looking at the behavior and health component of nutrition. So the session that I heard her speak at was called Food Matters, the Connection Between Nutrition and Psychotherapy. And the description was that the utilization of nutrition therapy by a dietitian with clients engaged in psychotherapy is often overlooked. Attempts at behavioral modification without homeostatic restoration may be futile. This session enhanced our awareness of the clinical presentation of a malnourished system and revives the fundamentals of nutritional biochemistry to help change lives. Wow. Welcome, April. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you so much, and I want to thank your listeners so much for taking time to engage in our conversation. It would be wonderful if they were all with us, but I'm glad that they get to listen along with us. Absolutely. And I want to just mention that I'm not involved in nutrition with psychotherapy. And it was a fluke that I actually went to this session. The the description sounded so interesting. And your presentation was so good that I thought, I've got to have you on Food Sleuth Radio. So tell me something. One of the things that you spoke about right from the get-go was this idea that malnutrition had nothing to do with weight. How do you define malnutrition? Well, first and foremost, the definition of malnutrition that I brought up in the conference was not my definition. It was basically Webster's Medical Dictionary of Malnutrition. As a nutrition therapist, I have the blessing of being able to help people be very intentional with their words because it's a lot of the training I've had in psychology. But at the same time, it's also helping them understand how that when we make assumptions about words, and we think about how those correlate with with different experiences we've had and our visions and our environment of of what we want to be, we can also often have a sense of hopelessness because we can't measure up to these definitions that we've defined for ourselves. And one word in particular that I see as one of the primary barriers for most individuals, no matter what their health issue, whether or not it's a, a mental health issue or a cardiovascular health issue, is that we have a very misguided definition of malnutrition. And, and if anyone were to even simply go onto a website search or Google or even Webster's Dictionary and look up malnutrition, my summary version of it is that it's the nutrients that are out of balance 
it's the malabsorption of these nutrients, it's too many of one, too little of another, but nowhere in any definition of malnutrition that I have found has body weight even entered into the definition. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that as a society, we're so focused on assessing this numerical measure of gravitational force from the moon on a box that we've missed the fact that we can have someone of normal weight, we can have someone of underweight, we can have someone of overweight stature, but we all could be malnourished because we're not looking at our functional capacity. We're not looking at the individuals as a holistic person. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I've, I've often thought myself that there are many more malnourished people, I think, than we even begin to realize because of those micronutrient deficiencies that result from a Western diet that is so overly processed and removed from the original whole from the earth food. And so I really love the idea that you brought us back around this term of malnutrition and helped us rethink it a little bit. So because of your work with behavioral nutrition, I also really appreciated the fact that you spoke about the brain and how sometimes We might feel that we're not feeling very well or we're grumpy or we're not able to think clearly, and maybe we seek the help of some sort of medication to make us feel better when actually if we just tweak what we're eating, we could really help the way the brain works. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Melinda, and I'm so glad that you took that away from the presentation I gave. And one of the pieces that I really emphasize in in the work that I do with individuals as well as teaching like the new generation of dietitians coming up and as well as my fellow colleagues and interdisciplinary team members of therapists and psychiatrists is that we have to take a look at food as not an inanimate object. Food is a very dynamic, food is living. I mean, we have, you know, right now this time of year, it's so beautiful. We have like citrus and pomegranates and all these wonderful things coming into season. And you can go to the grocery store and and you can pick something out or you can go to a farmer's market. And at that particular moment, it's got a certain concentration of vitamin C. It's got a certain concentration of water. And as time goes on, those things change. And we change as well as human beings. And so there's a very beautiful symbiotic relationship between the food that we consume and the nourishment that we get from this substance that we're putting into our bodies. And when we're dealing with behavioral health, we're not dealing with the classic sense of someone who is unable to function. We're dealing with everyday behavior. We're dealing with someone who we happen to see is rude to another person and we feel that anger coming up with inside of us. And when we look at the medical piece of that and we look at the scientific part of that, that is a flood of adrenaline coming from our adrenal glands. That is our sympathetic nervous system trying to figure out, like, well, what do we do with this? Is this my responsibility? Was that okay? And so our brain is constantly thinking and trying to process the environment around us And the food that we consume are the substrates that allow us to think clearly, to think as accurately as we possibly can, and to have a perception that then allows us to act and to, quote, behave or make an intention that's consistent with our own integrity and consistent with our own values. And I really see that a lot of the patients that I've worked with over the years 
is that the reason why they have such levels of impulsivity, the reasons why they make irrational decisions in the moment is not because they are irrational human beings, but that their brains are not able to think and move as fast as those hormones and those emotions are telling them they need to. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes I think about children, for example, that come to school with maybe a package of candy and a soda or a donut and a soda. And maybe that child acts up in the classroom or that child is labeled as bad. And really, the child is malnourished. And the child would perform so much better in school if we as a society made an investment in nourishing that child well. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what's really important and, and definitely for all of your listeners to keep in mind is that what I really try to do is I try to help people understand scientific fundamentals. Like, I'm a nerd by trade. Like, I love science. I love biochemistry. I love, I love the body. I think, I think all of us as human beings, we are given one body as we're cruising around this earth. And it's, it's our duty to take ownership of that body and to learn how to use it. It's like if you were to go buy a new car, you know, you would go and read the manual. And, and I don't mean to equate the body to a car. That's a very common metaphor that people use. But yeah. I think the analogy goes very, very clearly into the fact that we have to have personal responsibility and we have to have accountability to ourselves and to those around us that we actually care for our body. And irregardless of what a particular child may be consuming, like if it's a specific food item, I personally don't believe that one food item is any worse than another food item because, as I was saying earlier, is that at one particular moment in that person's lifespan, that item may be fine versus another point in their lifespan, it actually may be detrimental. And that's part of the accountability and the responsibility as as living, human, breeding beings in community with those around us, that we're constantly evaluating. We're constantly looking at how are we functioning? How are we thinking? Are we living our lives to the greatest degree of integrity that we've chosen and that we can do? And food, I believe, is one of the most powerful tools that we have to give us that depth of awareness to make those assessments. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably why we both became dietitians, right? We we saw food for what it is, which truly is medicine, both preventive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my story of, of how I became a dietitian was, was pretty fascinating. I mean, I was in another career path. I was an exercise physiology major, and I had the plan of, of creating, like, superhuman athletic beings for a pro sports team. Like I was in my senior year of exercise physiology and the floodgates of heaven opened up in my sports nutrition class that I was just taking to check off my credit box. And it was like this entire illumination of clarity came to me and I was like, oh my goodness, this is how the body functions because I can learn all these pathways. I can learn all this knowledge about Krebs cycles and lactic acid and recovery and creatine, but wait, I have to learn about the substrates that allow all those systems to perform. And that was when food came alive for me. Yeah. I had a similar experience in that I also was majoring in something else. I was majoring in art history. Took one class in nutrition, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this explains so much about preventing disease and just the idea that you could heal someone just by changing these substrates that we put into our bodies under the umbrella of food. And it was magical. And I know that we both feel the same way about it. It's, it's a very exciting topic. Let me bring up a couple of issues that we have to cover. One of them is depression. 
And we struggle with depression, I think, in our lives at different points. Maybe it's short-term depression where we lose a loved one, or maybe it's weather-related, or maybe it is a psychiatric illness or imbalance. But you brought up a very good point, and that is the primary issue with depression is looking at a stable carbohydrate intake. Absolutely. And I, I think just a little little background for the listeners who are, are trying to grasp this concept is that depression is ultimately a dysregulation of serotonin levels. And in our GI tract, which is our mouth all the way down to the anus, is our gastrointestinal tract. And, and in this gastrointestinal tract, the primary function of these cells is to extract substrates or nutrients out of the food we eat and then convert them into working tools and then we shuttle them up into our brain and then the brain does the magic. And what we get from a clinical standpoint with depression is there's often a dysregulation of serotonin levels, which is a neurotransmitter. And most people don't realize is that there are more serotonin receptors in our GI tract than there are in the brain. And this is like an aha moment. And so as a dietitian, one of the things I'm always checking in with people about is is how is your gastrointestinal tract doing? And my clients love to have these questions asked. They hate to answer them. Is I'm always asking people about their bowel movements. I'm asking them about their gas. I'm asking them about, you know, how long has it been since you've had a bowel movement? What is it like? You know, and the reason why I ask this is because these are the clues that tell me as the medical professional what areas of the gastrointestinal tract may be slightly off or ill. And then when you fix those areas, when you target, say, you know, the jejunum, which is the second section of our small intestine, which is often where fatty acids are extracted out, if you can correct some of that of either, you know, if someone's consuming too many fatty acids or someone's consuming not enough, then what you do is you enhance that capacity of that part of the body to do its job Thus, you then can correct some of the clinical manifestations. But to the point that you made, the brain primarily is going to use carbohydrates, meaning your starches, your fruits, your vegetables, and your dairy as its fuel source. However, the body can use alternative sources of fuel, like your proteins and your fatty acids, to help it function and to help our brain make sense of the environment around us and to utilize these neurotransmitters. But the problem is, is that if we start using those fuel sources, you know, protein or fats, for the intention of what a carbohydrate is supposed to be doing physiologically, then number one, we miss the function of the protein and the fats for what they are supposed to be doing, but then also the organs that are involved in the absorption and the processing of those substrates end up getting tired because they're working harder than they would normally do. And so it's really, it's, it's a really interesting manifestation with depression, but the key piece is that if you want your brain to start having a stable mood and an ability to kind of make sense of what you're processing in therapy or even just in conversation with a great friend or in your own kind of private time of journaling or spiritual practice, you have to have predictability of when your body is going to have energy. Mm-hmm. And so the first tip I give anybody that I work with, I don't care if you are eating food that you will never even tell, you know, your mother that you're eating, do it on a consistent level. Make sure that your body knows that every day at 1230, at 330, at 7 o'clock, it's going to get a dose of fuel. And then once the predictability gets in, the mood starts to stabilize. And then when you're working with your dietitian, who is the expert on food, then you can start altering the content of your food, but all the organs and all the systems 
they know that it's work time. Like they're punching their clock and they're like, time to go to work, guys. But then they know when they're done as well. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with April Winslow. She is a fellow dietitian. She's the co-founder of the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. She's also the public policy liaison for the Behavior Health Nutrition Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She practices in San Jose, California, where she is the founder of Choose to Change Nutrition Services. I heard her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting in Houston, and I was absolutely fascinated by her presentation about how nutrition works with regard to psychotherapy and cognition. You've got an extensive background, April, and you have great training, and you've been working extensively with eating disorder programs. Yeah, I am working primarily with individuals who have a lot of manifestations of malnutrition in forms of eating disorders. But what's really interesting, Melinda, is that as I've you know been crafting my, my practice and, and really doing a lot of my own development and, and cultivating theories and practice, is that I'm expanding the work that I'm doing because no disease state operates in a vacuum. And that's a very important moment. That's even a tweetable moment for anyone who's listening there is that all of the manifestations that we have within our health, they're often connected. And so the individuals that I work with who maybe present with an eating disorder, such as a binge eating disorder or anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, they often have anxiety. Then they often have hyperlipidemia, which can often translate into cardiovascular issues, which can translate into diabetic and endocrine issues. And so I think what is so wonderful and why it was such a pleasure to meet you is that we share the common belief system that as a registered dietitian, we are the only professional that can flip-flop between all these different disease states because of our medical training, but then always bring it back to food. There's no other profession that can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love doing what I do. Yes, well, that's clear. Well, let me ask you another question about an issue that you brought up during your talk, and that is yeah. that we shouldn't be afraid of fat. No. And haven't we seen that in our profession over the years where there'll be a run on low-carb diets and there'll be a run on low-fat diets to the point where we're really hungry for those things and our thinking might become distorted. So tell me why fat is so important in the diet and what kind of guidance do you give your clients about it? I think one of the first things that I do is you have to take a look at the word, because I think a lot of the reasons why not only my clients, but just society in general, is they avoid the word fat is because we have this mentality that we would never want to eat the thing we don't want to become. And so, you know, it's just, it's a very illogical thought process. And that's where in the work that I do, I really emphasize the science. I really emphasize the biochemistry of a fatty acid. And I teach my clients about a triglyceride. I I show them the structure. We draw it on my whiteboard. You know, and I, I teach them about what this is. And then when you translate that into functional health and you translate them into functional food, and then we tie this back into the brain, it's so obvious why we need fats in our diet. Our brain is about 60% fatty acid or lipid, whatever word we want to call it. We could call it pumpkins if we want this time of year. But our brain structurally is about 60% lipids. And all of the myelin, which is these sort of insulators and protectors around the functional cells in our brain, which is a neuron, they are fats. 
And what happens over time is that our body is transmitting these neurotransmitters. And the way I equate it to is I'm originally from Michigan, and I remember when I was growing up that it was freezing all the time in the winter. And if you were to go outside without seven layers and boots and hats and clothes and things like that, you would get frozen, meaning that your whole body would just kind of stop and you would be stuck there. And then whatever's going on in your environment, you're kind of frozen in that spot. Well, how our brain works and how our body works is that when we're not consuming adequate fatty acids or triglycerides in our diet, our brain and our and our thoughts and our movements, we get stuck. And so what happens is I have patients so many times, like they've been on a fad diet where, you know, back in the 90s it was no fat. And I was a victim of no fat as well. I can count the number of packages of fat-free whatever that I ate. And it really led to a lot of behavioral stuff in my own life. I mean, I have someone that has recovered from being depressed. And so I've worked a lot of these processes myself in my own health and backed these up with biochemistry. But back to the, the piece around why we need them is that, our brain is a giant ball of fat in our skull mixed with electrical conductivity and lots of amazing thoughts. And if we don't have this in our diet, then our brain can't function at its full capacity. Mm-hmm. And kind of the last way for anyone to think about it, especially people who are handy and, and like going back to a little bit of the car metaphor, is that, you know, over time, like our cars, will, the oil will get dirty. Like we drive our cars everywhere and the natural byproduct of combustion is dirt and ash. Well, we're the same way. Like metabolism creates waste and it creates oxidative processes. These are free radicals. And so these free radicals, like they get kind of build up in our oils and our brain. And what we need to do is we need an oil change. We need to change our oil out. And that's where unsaturated fatty acids, they donate their own electrons so that those free radicals don't do damage. And and this is where the science behind our food is so fun and so fascinating because we can translate it to pieces and actual actions in our lives that make sense to us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to your website for a moment because I really like something that you've developed here. It's called okay. Choose to Change. And what you've created is a log or a record for people to fill in, but it's not only about food and fluid intake. It's about your GI function. It's about what kind of medication or supplements you might be taking. What it really does is it forces us to think about our lifestyle and how that relates back to food. So tell me why and how you developed this. This is a tool that was developed probably over the course of the past decade. I mean, it's it's been through many evolutions over time. And it really started off with the basic 24-hour recall, as many dietitians are trained when we get our internship training, that we want to ask clients about. Like when we go in to check in with somebody, you know, we are medical professionals to talk about food. And so we need to know what you're consuming so that I can tell you what to eat. And it started off with having people record like breakfast and snack and lunch and snack. And and what was really fascinating is the first process that I changed within this is I stopped calling meals and snacks meals and snacks. I really thought of them more as like feedings or sessions as I have on the log in that, that we have little moments in our day where we fuel up, where we be like, oh, our first session of the day is this. And I think what it really has done with a lot of the individuals that I work with is that, number one, it takes away the shame of that, oh, I didn't eat breakfast today, I'm a horrible person, because I know that they say breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but yet they actually ate like six times throughout the day. It was just very untraditional. And so the first part of the log is is just someone writing down their feeding times. 
And even if there's 12 of them in a day, that's okay. But we have to start off with where your feeding times are starting. And then we go into the next section, which is digestive health. And this kind of touches on some of the things I was mentioning earlier about how you can tell me what you put in, which is, you know, your recall of the food piece. And then also the individual can tell me what came out, you know, kind of like their frequency of bowel movements and any of the conditions that are around that. And then my job is to be able to to take my training and to figure out what's going on in the middle. And so this part around digestive health is just to give me an idea of have you used any laxatives? Have you used any fiber supplements? Have you used anything that would give me a clue that maybe there's something not functioning to its fullest capacity within your gastrointestinal tract? The next section is going to be medication and supplements. I put them together because I believe it's very important, and I think it's also one of the problems that we have within our medical community at this time is that we don't take a look at supplements with individuals who come to, say, a physician or, you know, a DO or any other medical practitioner. And it's I don't believe that it's because they don't value this. I think we're just not familiar to ask it. And so I ask about these two together because, You can have someone who's taking 5-HTP because they read in an article that that's the precursor to serotonin, which can help with depression, and this individual goes to a psychiatrist for an evaluation for an antidepressant, but does not list that they're taking 5-HTP. Right. And that can really alter the actual function of the pharmaceutical medication. So I feel it's very important that we all take a look at both sides of medicine. And then activity. We have daily movement versus intentional exercise. This part got created when I started working with eating disorder patients. And the reason why is that when someone's struggling with an eating disorder, there's a strong sense of compulsion to have math be the focus of their life to where energy in equals energy out. And number one, it's a significant distortion of metabolism. But I really learned that as the clinician, I had to be specific of like, So you say you don't do any exercise, but yet you never sit down and you're moving for 14 hours a day. And so I wanted people to really make an intention to quantify those two things, but then also in my own process with individuals is I want them to be able to start thinking about how they define exercise. Sometimes exercise is going to a class, to where you're going to a yoga class or a dance class. And sometimes exercise is hiking in the woods. Or maybe sometimes exercise is putting on really loud music and shaking your booty in the in your living room. You know, but I think it's really important. We all get to define that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. The next section is physical repair. And physical repair is, is probably one of the most recent additions to this log. And it, it comes from a lot of my own healing as well, because we're all on a healing journey throughout life. And it has to do with sleep. And sleep is probably the one of the most restorative amazing parts of our health that we don't appreciate. And so along with the conversation we were having earlier about having like stable predictive times of our carbohydrates and our food times, our body also wants stable times of when it goes to bed. You know, it ideally wants to go to bed around the same time every day and wake up about the same time every day. What that is for you is is very personal. But then also the subjective report of that if I have a client who has slept for 10 hours And then they rate the quality of their sleep on a scale of 1 to 10 with being like, you know, 1, I'm super tired, and and 10 being, you know, I can do anything that I ever wanted. If they've slept that many quantifiable hours and they still only have the energy of like a 3, something's going on there. And then I would take a look at their food because it could mean that maybe their body doesn't have the right substrate for them to sleep and heal. 
April, I have to interrupt you because unfortunately our time is up. And I want to end here and just advise our listeners to check out this excellent questionnaire. I think it is extremely eye-opening in terms of not only eating and exercise sessions, but how we feel emotionally. And as you mentioned, you know, what kind of physical repair are we giving ourselves? So in closing, I want to thank April for being my guest. She is the founder of Choose to Change Nutrition Services, where she focuses on nutrition and psychotherapy. She is based in San Jose, California. I want to remind our listeners, too, that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And April, I want to thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda.